You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. I was working at Jennings Tremont Enterprises, JTE, when Anna Freed and, I suppose, the rest of us, quite by accident, happened upon the most important discovery in the history of this world or the next. JTE's primary work was developing advanced animatronic editing techniques for film. It was our job, or at least the job of the scientists and programmers, to develop animation tools that would create high-end movies indistinguishable from live action. Joseph Jennings' childhood dream was to make new movies with old-time stars. He wanted Humphrey Bogart and Peter Lorre side-by-side with Rudolph Valentino, Myrna Loy, Marlon Brando, and Natalie Portman. These new classics, he envisioned, could be made in small laboratories by purely technical means. Had we been successful, the stock in JTE would have been worth billions. Instead, we were secretly vilified, physically quarantined, and warned under the threat of death not to create documents such as this one. Writing this memoir, my second act of true rebellion, is necessary in spite of the danger because there must be some record of what really transpired in case the government gets to me before the Alto arrive. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. My name is Joshua Winterland. I suppose you could call me a failed writer. Failed is a harsh word, but valid in this case, because all my life I wanted to be a playwright. I've written 37 plays that have been rejected by every theater, playwriting competition, and creative writing school in the country. I am 39 years old and have been writing since the age of nine. When I realized that I'd never be successful or even produced as a playwright, I began work as a technical writer for a succession of various companies and institutions in California's Silicon Valley. I was the guy who wrote the manuals for the new hard and software. My day's work was to help consumers figure out what tab to hit and where to look up the serial number, how to register online or over the telephone, and what safety precautions to take before turning on a new system. My fate was recast when the country went into a serious economic recession and, coincidentally, my girlfriend, Lena Burstyn, woke up one day to realize that she was in love with my childhood friend, Ralph Tracer. Lena told me one morning before I was to go off to work at Enerdine that Ralph had called because he was coming in from San Francisco that evening and she had offered to cook dinner for the three of us. I thought this was odd because Lena rarely cooked on weeknights and she had always said that Ralph wasn't her kind of person. It's not that I don't like him, she said more than once, but he just doesn't interest me. I didn't give it any serious thought. Ralph was a good guy. I'd known him since junior high school in Oakland. He was from a different neighborhood, but we made an early bond. We talked to each other at least once a week since I was 13 years old, sharing our boyhood dreams. I planned to be a playwright, and he wanted, in the worst way, to lose his virginity. Our goals alone spoke volumes about the value of reduced expectations. When I got home, Ralph was already there, sitting at the kitchen table. Lena was cooking. I felt proud that she was my girlfriend and that she was wearing her sexy rainbow-colored short skirt. Between the two of us, Ralph always had been the ladies' man. I had spent most of my life between girlfriends, and so being with Lena made me feel very, very good. Don't get me wrong. I really liked her as a person. If you had asked me at any time before that last dinner, I would have told you that I loved her. 
But after what happened, that love got lost, and I can no longer speak for it. Lena and I have something that we need to talk to you about, buddy, Ralph said in the lull between the soup and the rack of lamb. What's that? The fool asked. When I glanced at Lena, she turned away, but still I didn't get the message. It's amazing how human nature creates the feeling of security for itself, believing in a world that might cease to exist at any moment, might already be gone. I didn't mean for this to happen, Lena said, forcing herself to look me in the eye. She had come back to the table without the meat. This I took as a bad sign. Lena was up in San Francisco, Ralph was saying. I, I told her that I knew the curator of modern art at the Frierson Museum. Yeah, I remember. She, she came by the house and I offered her a drink, that's all. That was nine months ago, I said, thinking of all the nights in the last nine months when Lena had been too tired to make love. We tried to stop, Josh, Lena said. Every time I went to see Ralphie, I swore I'd never do it again, but... Ralphie? We didn't mean to hurt you, buddy, my one-time friend said. They talked more. I can remember words, but not the ideas or concepts they formed. I listened politely for maybe a dozen minutes before standing up. Ralph, I remember, got to his feet, too. Maybe he thought I was going to hit him. I don't know. I took my jacket from the hook on the wall and walked out of the house. Lena, to her credit, followed and pleaded with me. I think she said that they would leave the house for me to live in. I'm not sure. I drove off and stayed at a motel that night. In the morning, 19 minutes after I'd gotten to work, I was informed that Innerdine had gone out of business due to a dip in the stock market the night before. The motel was called the Horseshoe Inn. It cost $64 a night to stay there, plus tax and county fees. I went to 36 tech labs in the area over the next five business days. No one was hiring, and many were laying people off. That Wednesday, I drove down to L.A., bought a newspaper in Beverly Hills, and applied for a job at JTE Labs in Redondo Beach. Being a California company, and therefore at least partially new age, they wanted to hire a writer to record the progress of their research, a kind of have-memoir will travel. I was to use video cameras, a computer journal, and even a pen and paper in the pinch. Once every two weeks, I interviewed all the 19 employees, myself and the boss, Joe Jennings. That's really why I'm risking my life creating this document, just in case my plans fall short. It was my job, my only purpose, to record this story. And seeing that the content is of monumental importance, I can't allow special interests, government institutions, and or religious bodies to stop the advancement of science. I stopped writing for a while after that last word because I can't vouch for its veracity. The idea that we're dealing with science was at best an assumption on our part. And not all of us at that. Cosmo Campobazzo believed that the sale which is as much his creation as anyone else's, was a window to God. He wouldn't have used those words. He called the sale the blank page and believed that he saw Mother Mary standing next to me on a Santa Monica rooftop. Cosmo was an unschooled immigrant from the Sonino Mountains in the Molise region of southern Italy. A craftsman, he wove the 9 by 12 foot fiber optic tapestry that is the blank page, the sail. The millions of spiderweb thin strands were meticulously interlaced by the barely educated artisan over a six year period. 
Every morning when I got in, big lumpy Cosmo had already been there for hours, pulling the nearly invisible strands across the broad loom. The page, as it grew, was a gossamer, semi-opaque, and diaphanous fabric that rippled and flowed on its cherry wood, lead-fretted frame. The care that Cosmo exhibited was more than any man of the modern age would have been able to sustain. His assistant, Hampton Briggs of Watts, took the ends of each strand and connected them to one of sixteen motherboards that were suspended around the growing tapestry. These millions of connective strands glistened in the space around the floating and nacreous page. Walter Mosley is the author of the Easy Rollins mysteries, including Devil in a Blue Dress. He's won an O. Henry Award, a Grammy, and is the Pen America Life Achievement Award. His new book is The Gift of Fire and On the Head of a Pin, two, novel, two short novels from Cross Town to Oblivion. Thank you for joining me, Walter. Thank you. Walter, this, these two novels by themselves and put together are really quite brilliant and open up a really vibrant new kind of universe. And I'd like you to talk about designing that universe. This, seems, this is a part of a much bigger patchwork, isn't it? Oh, it is. And, you know, and I, I would say, I think I, if I were to, to say it, I would say universes. Uh, the Crosstown Omnibus to Oblivion is a, is a collection of six novellas. Uh, and in, in those novellas, uh, I mean, each one is speculative fiction. We really wouldn't call it fantasy or science fiction, but speculative fiction. And in, and in each one, a black man, in one way or another, destroys the world, or our concept of the world. And... Uh, and, and, and that was my, my desire, a kind of, uh, you know, I wouldn't say in the footsteps, but, but influenced by Philip K. Dick, I, I wanted to talk about pedestrian individuals who have the potential to have extraordinary impact on the world, unknown to anyone else around them. And so you have one book after another, uh, you know, in these two books you have, a, you know, a guy who's just kind of lost in his life, a failure in his own terms, who ends up having greater knowledge of, of, of the broader universe than anybody else in the world could imagine. Uh, in, in the other one, you have a, a, a kid who's a, a complete invalid, who's given the powers of, of you know, ancient deities in order uh, to have an impact on, on a world that uh, the deity sees as completely lost and nearly destroyed. You know, I think that it's very interesting what you said about your characters being very average, because that's something I think that's often lost on people who uh, talk about uh, Philip K. Dick's work, is that his characters are all really, they're kind of suburban losers. Yeah. And I think what I've really loved about these novels is these novels are really gritty. The characters in them, nobody in this novel, in either of these novels, you would think would, is going to have much of a life. And yeah. yet you use the elements of the fantastic to take us kind of, uh, to turn essentially the universe inside out. Well, yeah, when, when I'm, exactly. I can't even say any more than that. I'll just say exactly. <laughs> that is what I'm trying to do. Now, I, the first, uh, let's, let me get the order straight uh, that we're supposed to read these in because it's, it's in this kind of intriguing ace-double format. Did you ask for that? Yeah, yeah, I did. You must have some ace. Must have had some ace doubles well, in I your did. past. <laughs> you know, like when I, I read them, you know, when I was younger, they were already old. But I would buy them at used bookstores and stuff like that, and I just loved them. And uh, when I brought the six novellas to tour, and they told me that, well, they'll say we'll, we'll do it in three volumes. I said, well, as long as you're doing three volumes, t 
two novellas to each one, why don't we have them as flip books? Because I haven't seen a hard book flip book ever. I'm sure they must exist, but I've never seen one. And I've certainly never seen it for science fiction. Well, it's so such a delight to see that because it really harkens back to that kind of golden yeah. era when science fiction was really kind of exciting and new and a little bit scary. And you, in terms as a writer, bring all that exciting, new, and scary to both the stories in this book. Now, uh, across the three six novellas, are they going to um, resolve into some single resolution somehow? No, no, they're not. Okay. Uh, they're, they're, I mean... They may, in your head, as a reader, <laughs> they might do it in that way, but they're not going to, to, to come together to tell a, a larger story. Uh, what they're going to do is repeat a story in such really different ways that the underlying notion, I think, will become clearer. You know, the idea that these black men destroy the world. Well, you know, it, it's really not important that they're black men. Like this guy, Joshua Winterland. You could read the whole book and not know he's black. It wouldn't make any difference. But, but what's really important is, to, is, is to, to know that the world that we live in is, is, um, is, is not uh, the, the world that we know. And you can come at that from all different ways. Level of consciousness... Uh, alien life forms, uh, the, the, the notion of religion that it exists in us and that, that we create and that then comes back and impacts us. And, and so it, in many ways the story is the same, but they're told from very, very different uh, points of view. Well, the sense of economy and plotting of both these novels is incredible because uh, they both read like full novels. I mean, you yeah. get a full novel reading experience, and yet you can probably read. Most readers will be will be glued to their chairs in essentially one session reading them. And I'm wondering if you care to talk about uh, plotting out at this length. These are essentially novellas. Yeah. So talk about plotting out at novella length when you've written so many novels. Well, you know, I, I didn't really think about it. What happened was, is I wrote the first story. Which was? Uh, uh, which is, is neither one of those. It's one in, in, in the, other, the other book. And I honestly, right now, the title is not in my head. Uh, it, it's, a, it's about a, a guy who uh, has won the lottery and he's sitting, uh, you know, just some poor schlub in New York has won a lottery and he's sitting in an apartment. And all of a sudden there's a branch, a tall branch there in the room next to him. And he's wondering, well, is that one of the plants I had that died? And it happens to be an alien life form that has come here to ask him uh, to make space for it and some of its friends to come to Earth. It's, he's not the only person that it's come to, but he's the only person that accepts it. So I wrote this story, and, um, and I was really happy. I said, wow, that's really good. And it, it was 30,000 words. That's what happened. So I wrote another one, and it was about the same length. And you know, so much of writing is an unconscious experience. That form had kind of anchored itself in my head when I approached these stories. And so it turned out that they were all 30,000 words, more or less, and that they were, you know, they were all novellas that had that a shorter, shorter novelistic arc. You know. But, you know, it, I'm a very condensed writer. I, I, I believe that, you know, less is more, that you don't really need to explain long, long things. You don't have to... I could go to, like, you know, a blacksmith shop and not explain to you all the ins and outs of the job of the blacksmith, and uh, which a lot of writers do. Some people like it, some people don't. I don't. 
And so I try to, to be as quick as possible, even in my longer books. But so it, it just happened, uh, this, this form kind of anchored itself in my unconscious and I kept writing. Now, uh, these are called Crosstown to Oblivion. Now, I, is this something you came up with? And I call, Actually, the... my real title was The Crosstown Omnibus to Oblivion. I, I was thinking about the, the bus on, uh, on 10th Street in Manhattan. You know, just kind of like it starts nowhere and it ends nowhere. You know, and uh, I and, and and I wanted to talk about that 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 pedestrian notion. You know, my characters are the kind of characters who ride on the bus, and that and that and that you know they'll they'll they'll, they'll you know they'll take whatever deadly or uh, potent uh, piece of technology or mysticism with them on the bus, and and from that bus they change the world. Not you know from the Pentagon, not from some castle someplace, not some prince or some, you know. Even, even in one book, in one book, one of the characters is God. And, and God is a very, uh, you know, he's a very kind of, you know, kind of a, a little slow, a little shy. Uh, yes, he did create Earth. But, you know, he, he came from another race of people who, you know, who wanted to destroy his creation. and He would like them not to do that. It sounds like you had a lot of fun writing these. Oh, you know, I love science fiction. I think, you know, science fiction, uh, 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 you know, alternative fiction, whatever, speculative fiction, whatever you call it, um, is one of the ways. I mean, the the only way that that there's any advancement, uh, for better or for worse, in, in human experience, is to imagine a place and then go to that place. So you think that you you look back, you know, into the 19th century, and certainly one of the most important writers, though most people would never say this, is Jules Verne. Jules Verne imagined the 20th century. He sat somewhere back there in the 19th century, he imagined the full 20th century. Oh yeah, submarines, nuclear energy, you know, flying to the moon, you know, all that stuff, you know, uh, using of genetics, you know, to, 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 to you know, to, uh, influence how you, you farms work, you know. H.G. Uh, Wells also, I think, you know, did a lot of that. Though I think Verne was actually more to the point, even though maybe Wells was a smarter writer. The Gift of Fire is a reimagination or kind of a sequel to the Prometheus story. Yeah. And I, I love this idea of working with the Greek myths because they were really the first stories. And I think that these are the, you know, the humans are a narrative species and yeah. that this is a good way to um, get to the heart the really the heart of those narratives so what made you decide to to take to let prometheus off that damn rock well you know i i you know the the fire of prometheus is such an interesting notion that you know the, the what humans believe makes us different than other creatures is basically this fire in our mind, a kind of a, a curiosity which has a mechanical nature to it, makes us impact and affect the world around us. Though I, I don't think that the, 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 you know, the Greek stories are the first. I think the Greeks, all the Greeks will tell you, starting with Herodotus, that the, 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 the origin of thoughts for them is Egypt. You know, and, and these, these ancient Egyptian gods, which slowly morphed into these, these Olympian gods, which is part of the story. And, uh, and, and, and so, and, and which is why it comes around, uh, Prometheus, this Mediterranean god, who, ha who nobody knew has a second fire, has the first fire to allow you to think, has the second fire to allow you to understand what it is you're thinking about. 
and uh, he wants to bring that to the people of Earth. And of course, the Olympians don't want that. You know, they, as, as they didn't want the first fire, certainly don't want the second. So he comes down and he ends up with this young, you know, uh, invalid black child who he, who he bestows this fire upon. And the child gathers together, you know, a group. And that group goes out to proselytize and to hopefully change the world. You know, uh, I have to say that when I was reading that, those stories, the way that uh, the, the child goes forth, um, he's, his name is Chief Reddy. Yeah. Um, it, it had a lot of echoes of the Occupy movement and mm. the kind of the, the oh, definitely. changing changing on a on But I wrote individual. it five years before the Occupy movement, but definitely it is that notion that where people, <laughs> you know, when, when people start acting together and they act for themselves, rather than... Uh, you know, it, you know that that ridiculous notion of democracy. Well, I'll vote for you today, and then four years later, I'll see how you did. You know, it's like it says. He says, "Stop living. Stop living that life. Live another life. Live a life in which you are concerned for each other, and you help for each other, and you bring home your your value to share with everyone else." You know, and once you know people start doing that, you know, he he becomes a big danger in the world. This uh, story too talks about. The relationship between uh, men and their gods, and it's interesting, you know, that you point out that uh, as often as we read that the gods created us, it's actually us who created the gods, and that uh, yeah. doesn't make them happy, does it? Well, it doesn't make the gods happy. No, yeah. I mean, I'm, some gods understand it and accept it. Prometheus is one of those, but most gods want, you know, they 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 the, the the gods are basically the superego, and they want to dominate and uh, and basically torture uh, the mortal, the ego person, you know. And what, what Chief Reddy has done, he's kind of moved through the unconscious and has come back to, to debilitate uh, the superego. That's such an interesting, uh, you know, look at, at the human psychology. It's, I think one of the things these books do really well is to externalize all these kind of really interesting issues and turn stuff that is you know the 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 province of deep discussions about philosophy and psychology into an exciting plot and that is what makes this that's the real strength of the these stories and i think of speculative fiction in general well i'm so glad you like them you know i'm i feel very nervous because i think I, I take a lot of chances a lot a lot like dick you know i mean i'm not crazy about a lot of dick's writing you know because you know it's it's hard when a junkie is writing you know because they're they're under a lot of pressure uh, and sometimes it's good, and sometimes it's not so good. His his mind was always excellent, though, you know. But but I I I really I want to, you know. There are only two ways in which you can think and change. One is uh, philosophy itself. So you have somebody like Hegel, which is I mean Hegel is like straightforward science fiction. You know the the phenomenology of Geist. There's a there's a there's a overmind forming through human motivation through history, you know, which will, which in the end of history will be this great being, which will be God. You know, I mean, that that's science fiction, but of course it's philosophy. R.C. Clark Judd's end. Well, yes, but he got it from Hegel, you know, and Hegel, you know, and, you know, and, and, and then Marx takes it, and I think he does some very similar things with it. Uh, but then you have science fiction writers, straightforward, who, you know, just talk about, you know, who we are in the world and what we are in the world, you know, and, and you know, the, 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 the great thinkers... Uh, for me, are, are the ones who, who, who pay attention to those, those pedestrians in that world. Because it really is, those are the people, it's the 
it's us, the everyday people who change the world, not, you know, that king, that, you know, that scientist, that, you know, it's, it's us together, our dreams and also our, our labor, which make a new world. You do a fabulous job with your uh, South Central milieu, creating this atmosphere of this neighborhood and the people in it. Um, when you're writing this, are you like hanging out in those places or is this kind of just a recreated for you? I was born in, in South Central and, and I raised there, so I, I remember it, <laughs> you know, and so it's, it's, it's easy enough to, you know, to recreate that, you know, to recreate that, those images. I, I, I used to go to South Park, you know, where it's, you know, the first place that, that Chief Reddy goes to proselytize. Talk about creating some of these characters because, you know, there's some kind of interesting, I would have to say, uh, Christian parallels. I mean, you know, if I were to be inclined to be, uh, you know, have a, a Christian bent uh, as I read this, I would say, oh, there's a whole big Christianology in there. And I don't know whether that's um, coincidental or uh, well, you know, intentional. We, we or... talk about L Logos, who's the original Christ in mm -hmm. mythology. Uh, and you, you talk about uh, Prometheus, who, who's, a, who's another Christ figure in mythology, you know, uh, spread out on the rock and, and, and tortured, you know, by the, by the powers that be for, for bringing truth uh, to, 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 to humanity, you know. Uh, so there, there are, like, you know, it, it's like, you know, if one, when one owns a, a, an image and a name, i.e. Christ, and then they'll say, well, that, that's the image. Well, but it's not. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of a series of images in which, you know, uh, uh, you, you leaders arise up from the people and, uh, and are willing to be martyrs in order that the people can survive, you know. So, you, so, you know, anybody, you know, going all the way back to, to, to Logos up to, you know, John Henry, you know, I have those images. So, I, so I don't think that I'm being Christian particularly, mm -hmm. but but that that uh, form that brings that kind of Christian thinking, I I use not on the head of a pen, but you know, in, in the other one. To a degree, you might call this urban fantasy, the the gift of fire, and uh, although you create your rules so well and kind of describe the backstory. It has the feel of science fiction to it. And I think that's an interesting uh, effect and tough to pull off. Really? <laughs> I, I, it didn't seem tough at the time. Because, you know, <laughs> what I was doing is just telling the story. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm telling a story. You know, there, there's a, you know, Prometheus is stuck. He, 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 he manages to escape. He, he gathers together his intestines and he, and he, and he comes down to earth where most gods are afraid to come because they're mortal there. Uh, he, 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 he discovers that that second flame is still alive in his, in his, in his soul and that he can pass it on to humans. He finds that the most humans are not capable of taking this gift because as he, he has been debilitated by the, the torture of the gods, humanity has, has uh, reflected that debilitation. And so he has to search to find someone. You know, so for me, I'm like just telling, it's a story. You know? and, uh, Do you I, know where it's going to go? I mean, when you started that story, did you kind no, of... No, I, I didn't know these stories. I just start writing them. They were fun, you know. It's, they are fun. They're yeah. fun to read. And, yeah. and you know, you, I think you do capture that. Uh, the feeling that I think that people really like about uh, Philip K. Dick, and that I think you capture, is to kind of, that there's a world just behind this world. Yeah. And you just, all you have to do is just 
uh, get the right kind of vision put on its right kind of glasses. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and really, you know, when you start talking about science fiction, you know, um, we all live science fiction lives. And one of the things I like to say that centered in the 20th century, but not only there, you have uh, various schools of suspicion. Starts off with Darwin, certainly in the 19th century, saying, well, yeah, we think that everything is set. All the species, all the, the things, and all we have to do is categorize them. But really, they're all related, and every living being, every one of them, is in one way a species unto itself and has the potential to, to, to change into, into any kind of wild species. You could take a human being or a few human beings and put them on a planet and come back in 10,000 years and they might be trees. You, know, you don't know what would, would happen to them. You know, this is crazy. Nobody wants to believe that. Then you have Marx who turns Hegel on his head and, and talks about how economy creates an infrastructure that informs 99.99% of the actions of your lives. You think that you have free will, but really you're reacting to, to, the, to the structure of your labor through the economic infrastructure. Then comes along Freud, who says exactly the same thing, but in a, in a completely different realm, which seems conflicting, about the, the unconscious, saying that there are things going on in your mind that you have no ideas about, but those instincts are governing your actions, not your free will, as you believe. And finally, you have Einstein with the theory of relativity saying, you know, uh, the world you see is not the world you live in. The world you believe is not the world that exists. You know, and, and you, so you have, you have that. Now, but we, and we all know that, and we all choose to ignore it. We all choose to ignore it. So, well, yeah, right. If this happened to me when I was a kid, it would have been a terrible thing, but I wouldn't forget something like that. You know, even though we're talking about the unconscious. We said, well, yes, I, could, I can just quit my job and get another job. I said, yes, but could you just quit your job and do something that nobody else does? He said, no, that's impossible. No, it's not impossible, but you believe it's impossible because of, of the economic infrastructure controlling your life. But, but that, that's that whole thing. And so when you write a book like this, when you write a book like, you know, you know, you know, uh, you know The Gift of Fire on the Head of a Pen, it's, it's about those things that really exist. So the great thing about Dick, I think, is that what he, he was saying things that were true, not things that were made up. That there, yes, he's saying, he's postulating there's a world just beyond this one, but that's the life we live anyway. You know? One of the things I think is so interesting about this book is, you know, I, what, I know that you, you write a lot of great crime fiction, and I was thinking about the Greek myths, and I'm thinking, boy, those are all crime stories <laughs> already. I mean, these Greek, these Greek gods, they're just constantly misbehaving, and there's, a, a, I think, a bit of that in, in this book. Well, yeah, I think, well, you know, I mean, there's, it's really hard to find a novel that's not a crime novel. Um, this is not to say that all fiction is crime fiction, but in most novels, most stories, even most poems, something is happening that's hidden from you that you have to discover. So there's a mysterious element to all, all writing, all, all, all fiction. There's a, there's a question, because, and there's a question in our lives. Where did I come from? Where am I going? I mean, it's the simple, the simple one. Uh, uh, religion comes in and says, well, we have the answer. There is no mystery. Uh, we have the answer. But uh, so you don't write novels in religion. You know, you write Bibles, you don't write novels. But, but outside of religion, 
uh, it, it, the minute you fall out of that, you, you begin to, to, to wonder and, and, and to, 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 to wonder where we're going. So crime fiction is like, you know, it's the basis of all fiction, though it's not the content of all fiction. You know, there's a great line in uh, uh, the, uh, the Gift of Fire where he talks about the devastation of enlightenment. And I think that's really the core concept at both of these uh-huh. stories, and maybe in the whole series. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Well, once you know, it's you know, you, you're 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 destroyed by your your own knowledge. You would prefer not to know. Yeah. Most people, especially on Head of a Pin, would prefer not to know. They don't want to know who they are, what they felt, what they went through. Their life is was structured in order to forget those things. But that, then that's, you know, that, that part is the, you know, the unconscious. Uh, there are other parts, you know, the, about well, what, how does the universe really work and who are we in the universe, uh, which is, all, you know, we, we, we always think we're important, but in the end we always realize that we're not. You know, or at least that's what I always realize. <laughs> well, I would say in terms of uh, people who are writing today, you're very important because what you're doing, I, I think with these books, with these stories, they really um, bring together a, a variety of genres. Mm-hmm. And they do so in a really um, engaging and readable way. I, and you address really pretty heavy-duty issues in both of these stories um, in a manner that's kind of that's fun to read. I mean, these are fun to read books. They're not they're not a drag. They're 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 intense and important, and you, they make you think about stuff. Oh, you know, life is action. I think a lot of people don't, especially you know, the university really messes us up because it 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 tries to say life is thought, but life is really action. I saw a, a special which I which really impacted me. It was a, a documentary about these monkeys who lived next to this. Uh, lake. It was like thousands of monkeys, but it was a commune of them. And they had a, a, a pecking order, you know, and the top ones were these females and these males, and the, you know, and then the bottom one were the young females. And the young females were beaten, kicked, raped, uh, they got the last food to eat and everything, but there was one little uh, uh, female monkey who was a genius. And they were like, by the like they would fish, but the way they would fish is just jump in the water, jump in the water. So one monkey would spend his whole day jumping in the water. If he got, got one fish, he was lucky. The female fish, she, she came, she would, one day she was sitting there looking at the water, and, and she started to just dabble her fingers right at the, at the top of the water. And the fish would come up to it thinking that it was an insect or something, and then she would just grab the fish. Other monkeys saw her doing this, you know, and, you know, they say monkey see, monkey do. Within a couple of weeks, all the monkeys were doing it. And, 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 when the, and the, the, the special showed this little monkey did this 10 or 12 times, created, it completely changed this, this community. But they didn't know it. They still beat her, raped her, and kept her from getting her food because they didn't know that she was this genius changing their culture. You know, and uh, and that really that really interests me. You know, who, what how our world works, what what changes, what makes us because we we, we, we deny it. We deny jazz. We deny hip hop. We de- we deny the American prison system as as a major impact on our culture and who we are and what we are and what we think. You know, and we say, oh yes, it's the minister. When the minister man, it was this dude who hangs out in cell block six. He's the one who came up with that stuff. You know what I mean? There's one of the things I think is is really interesting in uh, 
the gift of fire. Is it because of the characters have this kind of gift of vision, uh, No Som and, uh, uh-huh. and Chief Reddy, it's like it gives them a kind of a, a social x-ray uh-huh. so that you can kind of look at um, you know, the social situation and make a lot of social commentary just by virtue of this kind of element of the fantastic you've tossed in there. Uh-huh. And I think that's a really interesting way to, to get at this stuff, to make it kind of, you know, you give us a, a sense of wonder at, that I could look at the world and I don't, now I can understand. You don't really need that special gift once well, you've read about it. That's what's so important about you know science fiction, speculative fiction, and good fantasy. You break the primary rules, and then and then see what what you would have if those rules were broken. And then and then you went, oh my god, like you know, because like for instance, uh, 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 Chief Reddy, uh, he has a power, but. So that's what breaks the rules, is the power that he has, the second flame. But what he does is he talks to people and says, you don't have to go to work anymore. You don't have to be separate from the people who live next door anymore. You, your communities, your, your blocks can come together, and, 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 and you can actually live lives that make sense, that, that are supportive, and that are possible for you to live in and to make sense in. You don't have to uh, go to school, uh, get a job for the government, vote for the president. All you have to do is live a life that you believe is right along with, with your friends. And, when you, you, and, and so then later on you can look at it and say, God, I wonder if that's true, in, in spite of you know, the, the fantastic that exists there. The the other story in this in this uh, set is on the head of a pin, mm-hmm. and this posits a, a piece of technology called the sail or the the page, and I, I really like this idea uh, because I kind of it gets to something that I'm really interested in, which is in storytelling, and there are like stories that that flash across this page. So yeah. talk about uh, you again, and this has a very science fiction feel, but also I mean. What's interesting is these stories meet in the middle, um, huh. wherein that I think the gift of fire starts out as very much pure fantasy. Yeah. And but at, by the end, we've got people kind of connecting with a psychic power that seems much more out of science fiction. Yeah. And the uh, on the head of a pin starts out very science fiction with a you know a, a virtual reality technology that yeah. creates a window to another universe. But by the time we get to the end of that, what's there is something much more spiritual. Yeah, which he which he says from the beginning. It's, yeah. it's it's very hard, but it's hard I think to separate the uh, unanswerable questions of ontology and the 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 seemingly straightforward issues. Of, phys- of physical science, you, you, so you could say on one hand you could say, well, uh, if if you if you heat water, it begins to boil. When it boils, it turns into a gas. When it turns into a gas, it expands. It does this. It does that. You know, and and all that's you know, good and well. It makes sense. It's 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 there's there's cause behind it that I can understand and I can control. But if I ask them, I say, well, where did water come from? And then the the uh, you say well you know it, it came from this and that I say yeah yeah but where did it come from first like all this stuff what is it how did it get here you know well there was a tiny little thing uh, one billionth the size of, of the smallest atom 
that con contained all the, the, the material of existence, and it exploded, and that's where this stuff came from. So, well, okay, but because, I, I, because I'm talking causally, uh, where did that come from? And they said, well, you know, it, it, was, it existed before, and it shrank, and then it blew up, and then it shrank, and it blew up. So, so the world is repeating itself over and over again. I've been here hundreds of billions of times doing these things, having these thoughts. So, well, you know, you know that's not exactly, you know, it's, I mean, the, the talk goes that um, magic or uh, fantasy, which, which uh, I think Zelazny talks about in this book, uh, Creatures of Light and Darkness, uh, meet in a place. They, it, it does meet. You know, you have Einstein saying, I don't believe God would play dice with the universe. Well, that's because he knows he can't explain why the desk sitting in front of him is there. He just has to accept it and work with it from that point on. In this book, you create this um, technology, and one of the things I like is that we hear a lot about uh, virtual reality, but what you created is virtual surreality. I think uh -huh. that's, a, that's a great spin on that kind of concept. It's true, though. I, I didn't do it on purpose. You are right. I did do that. You know, I, I've never thought of it before, but it's true. Yeah, I, I, you know, to create... And also, it, it, what it does once more, it gives a world... Like, you have humans who, who believe that they understand the extent of the universe. Even if they can't explain all of it, uh, sooner or later, like Aristotle, they'll be able to list everything and they'll be able to know what everything is uh, sooner or later just by, by expanding their knowledge. Uh, but you have the, the, this thing, the sale, uh, that, that tells them there are, there are levels of existence which you can't even imagine, which, which hold you like a creature in amber living your life over and over and over. And there are places beyond that in which your life uh, doesn't cease to exist, but 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 transforms into something else, uh, and there 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 are infinite numbers, you know. And of course, this is Michael Moorcock and, and you know his eternal champion, and and all of the different you know uh, realms of the multiverse, all of whom exist in different ways in which people reappear in different forms in all of these worlds. Uh, but you know, and I think that that's very important. You know, you know, Mike, who does great stuff, I think you know was very interested in the adventure of it. And the thought of it was not, I mean, even though it's in his head, doesn't exist in those early books. Uh, but, but it's what I was ex excited about when, when, I, when I was reading his books. It's like, well, what is that? What, what are all those worlds? And how can we relate to them? And how unimportant are we in relation to a universe which we have absolutely no knowledge of, you know, and that and that's what on the head of a pin, that's what you know, that's what comes out there. When you were talking about Michael Moorcock, you know, it made me think how much um, reading changes us. I mean, I remember reading those books a bit, um, you know, a million years ago, and the yeah. little with the DAW paperbacks with yeah. the with the yellow spines, yeah. and just going, you know, and you're a teenager, and, and you know, you're kind of like you're, you're a dweeb, and here's this teenager who's got this magic sword, and he says he can just yeah. slay things and go through universes, and I think it's so, in, and it, it, you realize that maybe I won't always be this little guy who has no power. Yeah. Maybe I'll find something that'll do that. And I think it's interesting, too, that the way I think people who read your book 
can come away changed by it. And I think that that's why we, uh, why people write and why people read. That's true. I think that, you know, whether they know it or not, mm -hmm. which is like, I mean, the, the kind of wonderful thing about it is like, you know, you can be changing things and, and you think, well, I was just having fun. Yes, but you now you've redefined something here. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about anybody who writes. And, uh, you know, and, and these books, you know, it's, it's really important to me to be able to, to talk about how, you know, what's well, like that, that book by Kuhn, you know, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, you know, even scientists begin to say, well, we understand the world. I mean, you know, you know, Einstein never won the Nobel for the theory of relativity because the people who were given the theory of relativity, didn't, the, the Nobel didn't understand the theory of relativity. They said, well, it might not be true. So we, and so they gave it, you know he had that photoelectric thing that that he did. Uh -huh. They gave it to him for that because <laughs> you know, and he was so mad he didn't even go to pick up the, the the award. He said, "I'm not going for that. Shoot, you know, I'm I'm old now, and you're giving it to me not for the thing that I did, you know, uh, you know. It's it's a it's a wonderful it's a, it's a it's a kind of a wonderful existence to believe in to believe that you can exist." and be important and be invaluable in a world that's so much larger than you. You know, I wrote a book called The Wave, mm -hmm. in which there's a, 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 a creature made from um, a bacteria that got knocked into the earth when the comet hit the, you know, the world you know, two billion years ago. And this creature can, can, can repeat any DNA that it comes across, living or dead. And it's sending an these messages out to these gigantic beings, these, you know, kind of beings much larger and, and, and much more uh, divine than humanity can imagine. And so this, this being, large being in Earth, but not large compared to these other things, is rising up. And, and one of these giant beings is coming toward Earth to meet. And there are these, you know, these tiny little humans in between trying to stop it for, for no reason in particular, you know, but that, that you know, but except for this is so much greater than they can even imagine, you know. And, 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 the, and the question becomes, can I live in a world that's greater than I can imagine and, and still have value? Well, you're getting into Lovecraft territory here, uh -huh. too. Yeah, well, sure. Yeah. And, and, and I really like that aspect because Lovecraft, I think, had a, a great feel for joining science fiction and yeah. you know, sup the supernatural and just absolutely obliterating the difference between the two yeah. and saying, basically, we don't know. And we don't. You know, we, we don't. I mean, any, any good scientist will tell you that. You know, uh, in on the head of the pin... Is a particularly uh, well-written, well-articulated uh, exploration of racism, and you have a, a, a character in there who's, you know, a virulent racist, and you take the time and the trouble to uh, uh, peel away his unconscious, and I think that's an interesting uh, attack to to take, and I think the way that you do it is nice because it's in terms of the speculative fiction aspect of it, it comes across as entertaining and scary and not um, heavy-handed. Well, and also there's, there's two, because there's, you know, there, there's a, you're the virulent racist, and then there's Cosmo. Right. Who right. Is, is, he, he thinks, well, he's kind of a lot, you know, a, a racist based on false logic. And uh, the virulent racist can't, is you can't save him because 
his racism is based on things that have nothing to do with racism and is unconscious. And Cosmo, though, at the end says, oh, wow, I was wrong. You aren't what I thought you were, you know, and because I thought, you know, I thought if I did this, you would do that. But I did this and you did something else. I was wrong. So he had the, he had the ability to understand that he was wrong. So, the, so not only was I talking about racism, I'm talking about the, the various aspects of it. You I, know. And I think you handled that well. And it's interesting, too, uh, in the other book, we have at, um, even in spite of the power, and I thought this, as a reader, this kind of surprised me, in spite of the power that Prometheus brings to Chief Freddy, there are people he cannot rehabilitate. Right. And, I, you know, you talk about the nature of evil. Yeah. Oh, that's, you know, that's, you know, it's part of mythology, but I think the reason that it exists in mythology is because it exists in humanity, you know. Certainly, you know, because it, it's not only, you know, when people say that we created the gods, you know, you know, like the gods exist, but we created them. You know, people, people, you know, say, well, you know, that's just a lot of, you know, you say it, but it's a fantasy. But, but somebody had to write down those myths. Somebody had to write that Bible. Somebody had to write this stuff. Well, yeah, we indeed we really did create these gods. You know, in order to understand things like goodness and evil and mortality. You know, and existence itself. Um, and so, yeah, you know that that that. You know, one of the, the problems Chief Reddy is going to have is he's going to run across evil and he's not going to be able to bring it around to his way of seeing things. So what does he do in that world? Getting this all packed into these two nice novellas is some, I think, wonderfully epic, poetic prose. And, and also some good, uh, some great... Um, dialogue that rings true, feels right. Uh, does this stuff pour off the tip of your pen? Well, I, li I write every day, you know. I, I do believe, you know, in, in, this, in the science fiction world I live in, that, in, that most art comes from the unconscious. And so if, if something's coming out of your unconscious, uh, if, if you do it every day, it becomes more and more uh, facile. You, you're, you're, it it, 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 it kind of comes out of you. You're, the thoughts... Uh, you, you finish writing today, when you wake up tomorrow, there's new things in, in the hopper that, that you didn't know. And, uh, and, and, and if, if, the, if what you're doing on a daily basis is structuring language in order to uh, express you know, th those things that are coming up, you, you become you know, hopefully better at doing it. You know, the way you're talking about uh, the way you write reminds me of uh, uh, The Second Fire of Prometheus. Yeah, well, I, you know, and, 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 and it's likely that, you know, it's like, well, hopefully, hopefully that, that, you know, this is why I try to tell writers, I say, because, you know, a lot of people, the reason they don't write, they, because they think writing is a conscious thing, because they read books and books seem conscious, but writing is really an unconscious act. I think reading is too, it, like you're, it's a conscious act, like you have to concentrate, but I think really, once you enter that prose world, that it's a very different place, it's like, a, I mean, the best reading of my memories of reading the best books are pretty equivalent to my memories of going someplace and doing something. Hey, that's that's one, one element of it. Another element of it is, is how we, we've lost in this world that Prometheus discovers the notion of even understanding what reading is. Like, reading a book is not sitting down and reading the book and putting it away. Reading a book is reading it again and again and again because there's all this stuff involved in that book 
and and you're changing and 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 the, and the book has much more to tell you even though you think you've read it you know that that's that's a it's, it's also another wonderful thing and i think too with uh this now you've written all six of these pieces then right yeah I have. how long are we gonna have to wait to keep to get all these books out of tour one every six months okay well, i mean that's... one two every six months oh. you know one two flip one flip book every six months so now six months from now six months from now Oh, that's a good pace. I mean, yeah. that, well, that's not too too torturous because. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things I think that uh, this kind of series, the way you've structured this, this lends itself to rereading. Yeah. Wow. I hope so. <laughs> now, uh, you created these. Did you create these all like in the heat, one after another, nothing else, or do you yeah, work I, on I different wrote stuff? Them, right, pretty much one after another. I didn't have anything else to do at that time, so I was writing these books really quickly. You know, it's hard, you know, because science fiction, nobody wants to, you know, every, science fiction is the most, villa, it, 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 it's, it's, it's the bastion of the most intelligent writers in the world and in history. And it's also the most vilified uh, genre, because if you're a fiction writer, uh, you're not important. A science fiction writer, you're not important So what in makes America. You, what makes you decide to do that? Because I love science fiction, and I know there's only one way I can talk about these kinds of ideas. I can't put these ideas in a mystery or a literary novel. I mean, you know, it, it, these, you know, you, if you're going to break the the a, a concept of reality, you've entered into science fiction. Uh, you can say whatever you want about a hundred years of solitude. It's science fiction, you know, and 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 it, it's there on purpose to break our concept of reality. So we can re-envision it in order to understand what we've experienced and what we can know. You you have a, a harsh view of uh, government and every you know kind of the authorities in this, these books. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's it's well it's well um, described. Talk about uh, integrating that into the story, into the plot in a manner that's not like you know. Uh, Bad, 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 you know, mustache-twiddling bad guys. Well, you know, the, the, the issue is this. If you have an atomic bomb in your garage, you no longer have any rights. You no longer, uh, you know, uh, nobody needs to have a, a search warrant to go into your house. Nobody needs uh, to, to, to put you on trial. And if they do, they don't ever have to let you go. Because you're dangerous. You have an atomic bomb in your garage. You could destroy Cleveland. You know? I mean, where did you get this atomic bomb? I can do anything I want to. I can cut off your feet. I can cut off your nose. I can beat you. I can kill your mother in front of your face. Because I need to know where that atomic bomb came from. The kinds of powers that, that my characters um, get access to in these books make them a danger to the world. That's why in each one, a black man destroys the world. There's a danger to the world as we know it. The reason that you have governments and militaries is to keep the world from changing. We want to keep the world the way it is. That's what we believe in. That's the American way. That's the Russian way. That's the, you know, whatever way. And so government necessarily has to come into conflict with, with uh, vast change. Now, in both of these books, uh, both of these stories, that is, a book, I say books, and I... And, and they are books. They are books. Little ones. Yeah, and I think that that's uh, something that's important to, to remember, that um, in terms of 
the reading experience, it feels like a novel. Yeah. And that's, that's a, quite an accomplishment. But in both of these books, um, the, we create the means of our own destruction. And I think that's uh, an interesting uh, perception. I mean, well, yeah, we're, well, like we're destroying ourselves right now, right? I mean, we're destroying <laughs> the atmosphere. We're, we're, uh, you know, we're destroying uh, people all over the world. You know, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and you know, in Northern Africa and Southern Africa. Uh, we're doing it through corporations. We're doing it through you know, uh, covert military action. Uh, and it's not just America. It's I mean, everybody's doing it. You know, everybody's involved in doing it. And uh, and so. Uh, this, but but the people who are doing it feel that they that they're in control. Uh, but when they look at, at my characters, you know, with their you know atomic bomb in the garage or whatever, uh, they said this is way out of hand, you know. So you have somebody like you know uh, McCain, uh, you know, singing a '60s song uh, instead of Barbara Ann, it's Bomb Iran, and. You know, and you say, and you ask the question, so well, why is he going about this? He says, well, because they might have a, a nuclear bomb. So, well, we have 10,000 nuclear bombs. So, yes, well, but, you know, that doesn't matter. We have, our control of power is justified, and we are reasonable people, uh, like Richard Nixon. And these people, you know, of this ancient culture, which, you know, is older than most extant cultures in the world, they're insane, you know, and so we we have to, you know, bomb them like a, a 60s pop song. Well, that was a, a particularly frightening moment in American history. <laughs> and it's a continual frightening moment. We, the, my stories are about those moments, but I'm breaking reality for a moment to look at it in another way. So then you can bring it back to the world you live in and, and, and wonder about it. You, you've described these the stories a few times as a black man destroys the world. Was that kind of your core idea walking into this? Yeah. yeah. And, and you just said, six stories, black man destroys the world, go! Well, you know, because, you know, I mean, you know, black people are so, so, so much kept out of the, the mainstream. And, and, and pedestrians in general are, are kept out of the mainstream, you know. Yeah. So, you, so you look at, like, a movie like the first Star Wars, which I guess is the fourth Star Wars, you know. Not only are all the humans in that white, they're all blonde-haired and blue-eyed. I mean, it, it, there's a notion, you know, like an unconscious notion, I think, from, you know, George Lucas, to create a world, uh, a white world, in which, you know, uh, so-called Hispanics, so-called Asians, so-called black people don't exist. Don't exist. I mean, we don't exist. Now, that's the biggest science fiction element of First Star Wars, that when we go off into the universe, we will have somehow in our history have eradicated race. Not race, we eradicate racism by eradicating race. You know, and so it, it's, it was my important, you know, my job uh, to, to bring those people back into, into fiction. Not that I'm the only one who's done that, but to, you know, but, you know and, and, and to have that you know, and when I say destroy the world, sometimes it is literally, you know, violently destroying the world. But, but most times it's changing one's aspect, one's knowledge of the world in such a violent way that the world itself quivers because change is frightening. You know, I've, all, I've often thought that uh, most network TV is more surreally unrealistic than, you know, uh, 
Oh, absolutely. Fantasy. I mean, you you look at these shows that they, they take place in in a world where everybody is a fashion model. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, or, or or you know, it's it's interesting, you know, because politically, when I give political speeches, I, I always uh, try to get in there that the older you are, the more you live in the past. Mm-hmm. Older people run, make the big decisions about the television stations, and so even though fifty percent of people under thirty have dated outside of their race. Mm-hmm. Less than two percent of people in television shows date outside their race, or would even think about it, because the people running it are still living in a world that was thirty years ago. This is another science fiction aspect. I am making decisions based not on what I am seeing, but what I once experienced, and I'm I am forcing that template over a world which 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 doesn't fit that form. And, uh, but I'm trying to make it fit that form, <clears throat> and, and, and I'm to some degree successful, but in the end it, it has to fall apart. Now, it's interesting, we live in a world of science fiction, there's, I mean, there's no question about it, and, and we don't know it, which is what happens in most science fiction. Kim Stanley Robinson has said, you know, we, we live, we're living in, I think we're living in a bad dystopia. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not even effectively dystopian. You're right, exactly. <laughs> Having completed these stories, where did you go next with your fiction, and where, what can we expect to see coming out next? Well, you know, I've been writing plays. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about doing a musical for Devil in a Blue Dress. Uh, I'm writing a new Easy Rollins novel as we speak. You know, I, I've, I've written a couple of, you know, one-offs, a, a literary novel called Odyssey, and a, and a crime, a, a very dark crime fiction uh, series uh, called Parishioner. I'm publishing those as e-books. Um, those two. Uh, Talk about the ebook. The ebook. How do you feel about those as a writer? No, I'm fine. It's fine with me. You know, I mean, it's like you know, you know either you're going to pay me to write my books or you're not. If you're not going to pay me to write my books, I'm not going to. I'm not going to sell them to you. And if you are going to pay me, that's good. You know, uh, and and you know, it's a it's business, and so the people who run that business are going to have to deal with that one way or the other. So I'm not worried about it. I'm you know, there are a lot of you know good things about. Uh, ebooks means that poor people can have whole libraries uh, in their back pockets that's great you know I'm happy about that also a lot of middlemen are cut out uh, but um, you know do you see yourself as uh, perhaps self-publishing someday essentially just cutting out the middleman oh I'm sure I, I could definitely could do that yeah I have friends who do that you know all the you know people who are also looked down upon the people you know uh, you know black uh, men and women mostly women who do street lit you know mm-hmm. they're publishers they publish their own work they, they write the book, they print the book, they get the art for the book, and they distribute it. What do you see as the future for uh, the, the publishing industry? Do you think they're going to go the same way the music industry of you know trying to sue the users <laughs> into profit? I don't think so. Not yet. Maybe one day, but not yet. Right now, readers like to buy, you know, readers don't really consider stealing books. They, so if you sell, you're selling a book, I'll buy the book. I'm not going to go into the bookstore and, you know, put it, you know, steal it, you know. I think, too, uh, reading is a, it, it's a cost-effective form of entertainment, and because it... Though it, most people don't know that, yes, it's true. I think it's, it's far... Much more expensive to go to the movies than it is to buy a book. And books have a, make a much greater impression because you have to do all that mental work you have to do that people are somewhat scared of is actually the what creates the greater pleasure. Well, there's only two or three ways to learn... You can learn by loving, or four maybe. You can learn by observing. 
You can learn by working with people, and you can learn by reading. And those are the only real ways you can learn. Uh, something will replace reading one day, but it hasn't yet. Really? You think something could replace reading? Yeah. What do you... Well, I don't know, but I, I believe in technology. I think that something will happen where my mind can be stimulated uh, by input that isn't necessarily me reading printed words on a page or on a screen. Uh, I just don't know what that could be yet. I, I don't know. I think that uh, the process of converting the language, staring out those letters and converting that whole process is something that's really intrinsic to human nature almost. Well, I don't, you know, but there was a period of time, period of time when people didn't do that. You know, I mean, Homer uh, told stories. There's some storytelling, which I think had the same impact as reading now has. There may be another form. You know, I mean, you know, you know, really, love does does it. Love. I I used to joke with my American friends, you know, women when they go to Italy. I say, you know, if you run across an Italian man and he sees you and he thinks you're beautiful, he will kind of like spontaneously learn English in order to speak to you. There's there's certain ways that make us want to learn. War makes us learn. War makes us create and invent. Uh, there are different ways, and you know, and 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 right now, I, there's just nothing that replaces reading. It just isn't, and so that's that. You know, so I mean, really, you know, right now, if you, if you if you don't read, you're not going to be a sophisticated member of this society. That's period. That's just a fact. You know, uh, one day that might change. I don't see how yet. I'm sure if anybody does before it happens, it'll be you. <laughs> I've been speaking with Walter Mosley. His new book is On the Head of a Pin and Gift of Fire. It's an ace double in hardcover format. Thank you for speaking with me, Walter. Thank you. It's been great. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.